Are you blessed? Say amen. amen. Welcome this morning. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Victory. And if you're our first time guest, we're thrilled to have you with us. We realize that there are a number of really great churches in West Memphis and Marion. And we're honored that you would come and be with us this morning. I'm going to ask if everyone would stand with me one more time, please. We're going to uh, read together our text for this series. The title of the series is The Principle of the Path. The title of the message today is called How Do I Make Godly Decisions? By the way, now that I have really have everybody's attention, um, one quick announcement. Please be in prayer the last Sunday of this month, the fifth Sunday of November, uh, November the 30th, we will be receiving our miracle offering for the year. It supports all of our outreach, everything that we do in the way of giving coats to children that are uh, underprivileged, uh, all the different outreaches that we do through the year, this one offering. We dedicate it that day, everything that comes in to all of our outreach ministries for the end of 2014 and all of 2015. So please be in prayer. Ask the Lord what He would have you to do for that day. That's all we do. We don't. There's no pressure, no compunction or compulsion or anything like that. Whatever just the Lord speaks to your heart to give, then we encourage you to obey Him. Amen? Amen. All right. How do I make godly decisions? Uh, we are looking at the series text this morning in Micah chapter 4, the Old Testament prophet Micah. Let's read together. Here we go. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I'm going to let you be seated for this other text. Uh, it's a few verses, like eight verses. And we're not going to read it. I'm going to sing it to you, okay? I'm going to give you a little taste of what we used to do back in the 60s. I am that old. Started playing uh, music in church when I was nine for the youth group. And then started playing uh, for, the, for the big church at 10. And this is the kind of stuff that we sang and played. Psalm 19, verse 7 through 14. The law of the Lord is perfect. Let me get an adjustment here. I can't play with that. What's going on with the, we got a short? That's what's happening. Try it again. That's just nasty. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, more to be desired are they than gold, they than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey. And the honeycomb. Now the ESV talks about the drippings. How many of you know you want to get every drip, every drop of God's goodness? But the King James says, sweeter also than the honey in the honeycomb. Precepts of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord Enlightening the eyes, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey in the honeycomb. Fear the Lord. If you know it, now sing it with me. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired. Sing that with me. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Than the honey. 
and the honeycomb. Moreover by them, moreover by them is thy servant warned, is thy servant warned. And in keeping of them, there is great reward. More to be desired, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey. We're talking about the word of the Lord and the honey. I believe you got it. Sing it with me one more time. More to be desired, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. than the honey and the honeycomb. Hallelujah. Be innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You know this one. Probably have most of it memorized and might have forgotten the street and the address, its location and the word. Read it out loud with me. Here we go. It's not up there, is it? Yeah, here it is. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my rock and my redeemer. Read that last verse one more time. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's one of David's psalms. He wrote many of them as a young, young shepherd boy tending his father's sheep out on the back 40, so to speak, of Jesse's land. This morning as we continue this series, this is number six in the principle of the path. It's called, How Do I Make Godly Decisions? It's at this point where this series intersects with a message, of, a series of messages that I preached a couple of years ago. And we would ask you to go back. If you're at a point where you're really seeking the Lord about the will of God for your life, the Bible says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may, be, may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Um, the way we do that, or there are a series of things that God has given us in the Bible, scriptural confirmation being one of them, which is what this whole message today is about. What does the Word say? That's the bottom line of the message that I'm bringing to you today. What does God's Word say? There are other things that are in the scripture that can help you make quality decisions that are based on the will of God. And I'd encourage you to check out that series. Uh, it's, it's not what we would call a shameless plug because we're not selling anything. Everything is free. Freely we have received, freely we give. You can log on to the website. Just go back in the archives and you can find it's a series called Seven Guiding Lights. This is the one place where these two series intersect. How do I make Godly decisions. Just a little review quickly this morning. We've been learning about the importance of the path that we're on. It's a geographical almost, it's just so, so plain in front of us that it just almost feels stupid and ridiculous to go over it again. But it's obvious that if I intend to go to Nashville and I get on I-55 going north, no matter how great my intentions to go visit my daughter at Belmont University and take her to dinner this evening, if I go north on 55, I'm not going to end up in Nashville. I'm going to end up in St. Louis. That's so obvious that it's just almost stupid. And something disconnects with us when we move from the geographical into the day-to-day -day decisions that we make in our lives because those are landmarks on the path. And it's so easy that people begin a part of their lives with an intention to accomplish something, to build a family that is centered on the Scripture and, and be Christ-centered in the home and train up champions, young children, train them up in the way that they should go so that when they're old they will not depart from it, raising them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. 
you get married and you stand on a platform and you make vows between three. That's God and husband and wife and you declare that you're going to live a life based on some words and some high ideals. And then life happens somewhere along the way and you veer off course and make some wrong financial decisions or, or led astray into some temptation and break vows. Any number of things that can take you down a different path that you ever, ever intended to be on. You intended to have a lifelong marriage committed to the person that you had fallen in love with, but something happened along the way. A bad decision was made. A course change took place. And life decisions are important. They're critical. And we've learned this principle, whether it's financial or it's relational or it's spiritual or it's, it's marital, um, it, it, if it's dietary, if it's... Uh, career-based, any of these things that we intend to accomplish, many times we don't discern the direction in which we're going and we fail to recognize because our intentions seem to make us feel like everything's going to be fine. But we're learning in this series that direction, not intention, determines your destination. Still reviewing, so say that with me. Direction, not intention, determines destination. All right, everybody together. Come on, clear. I know we had a lot of, a lot of stuff going on, a little bit of mix, mess up here. Let's, let's see if we can't get our focus together. Everybody, one more time. Say it with me. Direction, not intention, determines destination. Now, we are at this place in this series because we need to determine... So wait, somebody escorted our sister out. She's really having a hard time. I don't want her to sit here and struggle. Okay? Go ahead and help her. It's important that we recognize the, the place of the Word of God. Word of God is final authority. Point number one, everybody say this with me, the Word of God is final authority. Come on everybody, here we go. The Word of God is final authority. Authority. What does that mean? I mean, we all say that. We sort of acquiesce to that. We say amen to it on Sunday mornings. Unfortunately, too many times people will say, you know what, I've tried everything else. I guess I'll pray. And too many times those are words that we hear by people who love Jesus. And they've done everything in their own flesh, in their own ability, and exhausted it and sometimes sown some seeds in those directions and made matters that were bad a lot worse. When really we as believers ought to begin with prayer and we ought to base our decisions solely upon the Word of God. Somebody say amen. We go first to the Word and it speaks to us last. When all the voices have already given their opinion, the Word of God has final authority. Somebody say amen. What does that mean? I put a little italics line underneath that. That means if the Word of God has already clearly spoken on something, you don't have to consider it. If the Word of God is already clearly spoken, if the law of God commands you to do something and you don't do it, like tithe, it was before the law, it's during the law, it's after the law, it's part of the gospel, it's all the way from the garden all the way to the city in the book of Revelation chapter 22. It's God's principle. You honor Him with the first fruits of your increase and if you do that, He promises He'll get in His favor and bless all of the rest. So... You don't have to pray about whether or not you should tithe. 20 years ago, a guy came. Now, he's not part of this church, so nobody has to waste any time trying to figure out who I'm talking about because you don't know them anyway because they're long gone. You know, came to me with the idea that the Lord had appeared to them in a dream and told them he was supposed to leave his first wife and marry this other woman. And I said, that's a lying spirit. Because God is not going to tell you to do something that His Word is already adamantly opposed to what you're telling me the Lord's told you to do. That's not the Spirit of God speaking to you. Amen. You want to preach this? I'm teasing you. There are lying spirits. Plenty of them on Christian television. I'll leave that alone. Word of God is final authority. If, if the Word has told me I shouldn't do something, I don't have to pray about whether I ought to or should do it. Amen. It said I shouldn't do it. And there are times when I don't stop to pray and consider something because the Word's already clearly spoken. Now, there is a, a big idea that I want to grab. It's in your notes, and I want you to go back in the, the slides, guys. I, I skipped over it, so forgive me. But we have a big idea that I want you to grab in this message because this is going to be the umbrella 
for this whole message today. And, 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 and in this series, in these eight messages, every time out of Andy Stanley's book, I've just used a couple of ideas and put on my own stuff. This message today is one because the content was so phenomenal, I did not feel like I could do anything different that would be any better or that anything needed to be added to. I felt like I needed to go exactly with what he talked about and what was in the study guide because he's going to speak to two kings that we're going to talk about in the meat of this message today. Two guys, one named Saul, one named David. And both of them are going to wrestle with this big idea. And so I want you to stop right now. This big idea is one thing. This is the one thing that I want you to take away from this message today. And I want you to start right there and read with me. It says, one never accomplishes the will of God by breaking the law of God, violating the principles of God, or ignoring the wisdom of God. That is amazing. It's so amazing. I want to make sure you got it. Look at your neighbor and say, did you hear what he just said? Let me tell you what he just said. Come on, let's do it again. One never accomplishes the will of God by breaking the law of God, violating the principles of God, or ignoring the wisdom of God. So what am I saying? I'm saying that one never accomplishes the will of God by breaking the law of God, or by violating the principles of God, or by ignoring the wisdom of God. Word of the Lord's final authority. If it's clearly spoken, if there's a principle that's there, if the wisdom of God dictates something, I don't have to stop to pray about it. The word of God is clear. It's final authority. Number two, tale of two kings. Too many verses to read. First Kings chapter 13, we find the story. We just have to go back and step into the river of history that's flowing. The biblical stream of history. God has delivered the children of Israel... 1,500 years prior to this by a federal head of an old covenant by the name of Moses. He goes before Pharaoh. God sends 10 plagues to Egypt. And they finally leave having been delivered by the blood, the water, and the spirit. God walks them into the wilderness literally with a demonstration of the very first... um, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Positioning system. Global, thank you. God gave them the very first global positioning system, a GPS system, because they had a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. So when the cloud of God began to move, they knew that in order to have provision and protection, they had to stay with the cloud. Look at your neighbor and say, you better move with the cloud. In the New Testament, we talk about being led by the Spirit of God. Romans 8, 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So we learn to move with the cloud of glory, move where the Spirit of the Lord leads us. So it's, it's cloud by day, fire by night. God leads them into the wilderness, and into the wilderness, God takes Moses up onto Mount Sinai, and he, with his own finger, with the finger of God, carves into stone the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The four that relate to the relationship with God, and the second table of the law, the six that relate to men. And in that experience on Exodus 19 at Sinai, God speaks to Moses and gives the word of the Lord to the whole nation of Israel. And God said, I have called you to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, literally a kingdom of priests. Now, you can't have a kingdom without a king. And who is the king of the kingdom at this point? Everybody say God. How many of you know God intended to be the king of Israel forever? They were not to be like all of the other nations. God was to be their king and they as a nation not supposed to have a tribe of priests called Levi. But God said, I want you, all of Israel, all 12 tribes, I want you to be a whole kingdom of priests, literally a priestly tribe to all the other nations of the earth. Because from the foundation of the world, God was never ethnocentric in the sense of being Jewish only, covenantally. From the foundation of the world, Revelation chapter 13 verse 8, the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. Come on somebody, what does that mean? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So before God ever chose Israel, He loved the whole world. And he intended for Israel to be a kingdom of priests, a nation, a holy nation, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Peter picks this up in his epistle in 
1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and he says that you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're supposed to show forth the praises of him because you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, a chosen generation he starts out with. What Israel refused to do, they got scared. They said, no, we can't do that. We don't want to be your priests. Let somebody else do it. And so God chooses one tribe out of the 12 tribes and he makes Levi, the Levitical priesthood, of which Aaron and Moses are both of that tribe. Moses is God's prophet. Aaron is his mouthpiece. So we've got a prophet, a priest, and God's the king. Those are the three anointed offices of the Old Testament and the new as well. Jesus stands in fulfillment of that and becomes a prophet, a priest, and a king in the, old, in the New Testament. God basically says, you're not to be like all the other nations. Don't desire what all the other nations desire. Forty years through the wilderness, Moses dies. God buries him. Joshua takes over. They shift from the leadership of a shepherd into the leadership of a soldier. Moses, uh, Joshua leads them into the promised land. They take down walled cities. They, they kill giants. They possess lands. They take hold of the promises of God. Jesus is our heavenly Joshua and he's invaded this land. He's taken down walled cities in my life and killing giants in my life so that he can possess this whole land. And the glory of the Lord can fill all this earth right here. You're a little microcosm of the big picture, the macrocosm of the kingdom of God. They go through a period of judges and we have people like Samson and Gideon and Deborah. Isn't it cool? God raises up a woman. She hands Sisera into her hands. Great, great, great Bible stories. I love preaching out of that whole section of the Old Testament. And we come up to the time where God introduces this whole new flow with a guy by the name of Samuel. And Samuel is a prophet of God. And he was so powerful that the Bible says that none of his words ever fell to the ground. He was a young man growing up under a wicked priest in the, in the tabernacle of the Lord. His, his name was Eli. He didn't correct his sons and they're doing all kinds of things, laying with prostitutes right in the actual tabernacle. Judgment of God's coming. God speaks to Samuel and raises him up. And he says, I'm about to do a thing in Israel that will cause all the ears to hear it tingle. It was a new thing that God was doing. And God raises up this prophet by the name of Samuel. And he has the ability, everybody, the Bible says, from Dan to Beersheba. Everybody knew that the God of Israel was speaking through the mouth of the prophet Samuel. I'm going to open this up in 12 weeks of teaching on the poet warrior king on David in the spring of 2015. And so I've already been studying in that way and it's tempting to just kick in that gear because I'm so excited about it. And this is the actual comparison that Andy Stanley brought in this book that you will talk about this week if you're in a life group. So the people of Israel begin to look at the other nations and they start to be conformed to the world around them and they're crying out, wanting to have what the other nations have. And if you'll remember the whole story of the judges is that a righteous judge would rise up many times and rule sometimes up to 40 years. And as long as the judge was in place, the people's hearts were toward God. But the scripture says there was no king in Israel and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And if there ever was a time in Israel that could be compared to America today... There's basically no law in the land and the people do whatever the heck they want to. Whatever's right in their own eyes. And so we see these cycles of repentance and restoration and then the judge dies and then the people begin to, their, their commitment begins to wane. And it's up and down and up and down and up and down. God raises up a prophet by the name of Samuel. And, and Samuel's dealing with this same stuff that guys like Samson and, and Gideon and Deborah and the others dealt with. And he starts to hear the cries of the people of Israel that are saying, let us have a king. We want to have a king. We want to be like all the other nations of the earth. This is really where the evangelical church is in America today. We just want to be like all of the other groups so that we can be accepted and be loved. And so we end up watering down the gospel and we cease to really preach the commandment of the law of the Lord that's perfect, converting the soul. We ignore all of these things in order to try to be able to just soft pedal and maybe whitewash it a little bit and make it a little bit more acceptable, make it a little bit more palatable. What we do is we literally gut the living seed of Christianity when we do that. Because the law needs to be there because it's what breaks us and gets us ready to receive the, the favor and the blessing of God. And you have to have both of those in application. Somebody say amen. 
Samuel hears the cries of the people and finally God says, go on and give them what they want. They've rejected me, the Lord, as their king. We're going to give them a man as a king and I guarantee you they're not going to love what they have after they get it. Every time in the Bible where you see democratic rule, where the majority rises up, it is never a positive story. It always ends in outrageous problems. You can't take me to one place in the scripture where people govern themselves and where the favor of God is ever the moral of the story. It's bad every time. So God basically says, let them have what they want. How many of you know sometimes God's doing you a favor when He doesn't answer every prayer you pray for? And so God basically says, okay, I have an idea. We'll raise up this guy. And he finds Saul. Saul, the Bible describes as an athlete. He is handsome. Literally in height, he is everything that a leader is. He is tall. Everybody who's a little bitty short Jew in this day looks up to Saul. The scripture literally describes him as being head and shoulders above all the other men of Israel. So he's got the look. He would be on the cover of Muscle and Fitness magazine. He's rippling. He's handsome, a little bit of leadership, a little bit backward in terms of really being able to relate to and connect with people because when Samuel goes looking for him, Saul is over there hiding behind all of the baggage with the, with the work animals, with the, with the asses and the oxen. I'm sorry, I should have translated the King James and said donkey, forgive me. And so he's over there and Samuel has to call him out and it starts out looking pretty good because it looks like this really handsome, great potential leader has a lot of humility and so maybe this is somebody God can work with. And so Samuel takes out a flask of oil and he pours the anointing oil on his head. Uh, Saul kneels down before him and the prophet of God speaks and refers to him as the Lord's anointed. Everybody say the Lord's anointed. Now this is, he's the king now. And he has the job because there are a few folks that have gathered to see this happen, but it has to basically go abroad in all of the rest of the whole 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. And immediately Saul begins to do what he recognizes needs to be done, and that's to deal with an enemy. A common enemy of all the Israelites are the Philistines. How many of you remember Goliath the giant? The Philistines are a type of the flesh today in Christians' lives. It's this recurring enemy that just perennially, it's the weeds that spring up in your garden. They come back over and over and over and over again. Well, here come the Philistines again. So they've already had all these problems. As a matter of fact, the Philistines were just trampling down the Israelites. They had taken every sword from every Israelite. And the Bible says, this is a sad verse, there was no smith found in all of Israel. That's a sad day when there ain't no smiths around. It means a blacksmith. There was nobody who had the ability to take metal and craft it into a sword for the purpose of protection and fighting. And the only men who had swords in the whole nation of Israel were Saul the king and his son Jonathan the prince. Because the Philistines were ruling over all of the children of Israel. They were trampling them down. They were oppressing them. The people of God hadn't been called by God to live under that kind of bondage. They were covenant people. Sounds like church folk today who know they're forgiven, but they're still walking in bondage to the flesh, to the Philistine that continues to attack, to tempt, taking the sword of the Spirit from your mouth, which should be the Word of God that will cut the head of every Philistine off. Come on, I'm preaching real good right now. And Saul begins the process of trying to draw all of these people together. And in, in, in the moment of trying to rally them, he, he calls them together to a place called Gilgal. And I wish I could stop and, and pay some attention to this because Gilgal literally means the place of the circle. And this is where we've been dealing with this whole thing called the principle of the path because you don't want to get in circular behavior because you don't go anywhere. You just end up digging a rut. Saul calls all the men of Israel together and he calls them together to a place called Gilgal and they're waiting and they're waiting for Samuel the prophet to show up because anytime the army of God ever, ever went out, they would always have a priest or a prophet that would come and pray a blessing over the army, over the warriors. And so Samuel tells Saul, wait seven days and at the appointed time I'll be there because Samuel had instructions from God. He had to be somewhere else, had to do somewhere else, take care of some other God's business. So Saul's out there, and every day it gets worse. And Saul is starting to get very trepidatious. 
He is fearful. He is worried. And the distinction came when God set him in as a king and he said, this is what you're supposed to do. You have these prescribed means of responsibility and authority. Do not step outside those bounds. A king was allowed to rule, but he couldn't stand in the office of a priest, nor could he prophesy like a prophet. And so Saul decides that the men of Israel are starting to scatter and they're getting scared and they're hiding out in all the caves around. And so Saul makes a decision. He does not wait on Samuel the prophet to arrive and to give the sacrifice and to speak the prophetic blessing over the men of Israel. And he decides to do it himself. Seven days had arrived and Samuel didn't show up. Now if you can receive what I'm about to say, hear this. I believe God sometimes waits a little longer than you think he ought to just to see how you're going to respond. I don't know about you, but I definitely know in my own personal life. He may not be there when you want him, but he will always be there right on time, in his time. Come on, somebody. And so Saul decides that, hey, listen, I can do this. After all, I'm the king, and I've got the favor of the Lord, and I'm the Lord's anointed. So he goes and gets the sacrifice. He cuts the throat in the presence of all the men, gathers them in ranks, and he sets it on the altar, and he has a sacrifice, and he pronounces the blessing. And about the time he says the amen, up walks the old prophet of God, Samuel. And Samuel says, what are you doing? Oh, well, you weren't here. You said you'd be here in seven days. And he said, what do you think you're doing? You were given strict, clear words. You are not to break the law of God. You're not to violate the principles of God. You're not to ignore the wisdom of God. And you did every one of those things in what you've just done here because you wanted to get a marketing campaign and stir the rest of the church and keep everybody happy because you felt like folks were starting to kind of scatter a little bit. So you decided to do something in your own solish. I'm sorry, I mean soulish. No, I mean solish self-strength. And God looks at Saul through the bony finger in the eyes of Samuel and he says, because you've disobeyed me this day, what would have been your kingdom and your heirs sitting on the throne right after you? This day the Lord rends the kingdom from you. It will be taken from your hands. Now, he lives out the rest of his reign for 40 years, but the Bible says that day the spirit of the Lord left Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord came and troubled him. And the only way that Saul could get some relief was that somebody could do what you saw me do just a moment ago and begin to sing some of the Psalms of Zion and pluck the strings of the harp. And David, who about this time, who has already been visited, the house of Jesse has already been visited because the Bible says God repented that he had chosen Saul and hated that he had done that. And Samuel was wringing his hands going, why did we put this guy in? Let me tell you something. When you give a man a title, more times than not, what's really in the heart comes out. I've learned the hard way that you don't recognize and give someone authority and responsibility until you've seen them go through pressure because pressure can make what looks like a good person jump goofy. Paul, Saul, I'm sorry, Saul gave in to pressure and he did something he shouldn't have done. He broke the law of God he violated the principle of God. He ignored the wisdom of God. He's asking for somebody who can come and play music and can deal with this evil spirit that's troubling him. He can't get any rest. He's walking the roof of the palace every night and he's tormented. This thing is just vexing him. And so they hear about a young shepherd boy who has an ability who's been out there for the last several years on the back 40 tending sheep and learning how to operate a slingshot and has the testimony of taking down the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. Rescuing young sheep from those two attackers. And so Saul sends for David and brings him to the very court of the king. And David would get in the presence of Saul and start to pluck the harp. And he would sing. And he would sing the songs, the psalms that he had already written on the back 40 of his daddy's property on Jesse's farm. And every time David would play, Saul would get ease. He would, the torment would cease and he would rest he would sense the presence of the Lord. I'm going to tell you something right now. I began this church 25 years ago with an awareness 
of God's presence. I will never be ashamed of the revival culture that I grew up in because it gave me the ability to understand some things about the presence of God that you can't teach in a seminary class and you can't read out of a book. Victory is about the manifest presence of God. We'll never back up from that. Not as long as I'm the leader. We're interested in God showing up and touching hearts and changing lives. David grows up in Saul's house. He starts going out to battle with the men of Israel and he becomes a great athlete. He grows in stature. And the, the interesting thing about it is, is that during all of this time, Saul has enjoyed the songs of the women of Israel who would dance with their tambourines and sing about Saul has slain his thousands. But when David starts coming home and has the testimony of thousands upon thousands of Philistines that have died under his leadership and leading the army of Israel out there, the women of Israel would grab their tambourines and they would give the parade of the champions as David would come back into uh, the, the court of the king and Saul would be there not having gone out in battle. And so David would come in and the women of Israel started singing this little ditty, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. Now what do you think that will do to the heart of a jealous king? i got to kill this kid because they're, they're already singing about him doing ten times as much as I have and he was already jealous of the anointing and the appointing of God on his life so he takes his javelin more than once and he tries to append the anointed of the Lord to the wall. Saul doesn't have any knowledge of it but right there in his own house is the heir to the throne, the next one that God has already anointed to be the king of Israel. David has to flee. It gets so bad. Saul is so jealous. He's in a fit of anger. He's in a fit of envy and jealousy all the time. And so David flees and he runs from Saul. He hides out in a cave called Adullam. And the Bible talks about when he was in that place because he had already achieved a level of reputation that the favor of God was on his life, that the men of Israel began to gather into that cave out there in the middle of the plain. I've been there in Israel. It's remarkable. There's this just massive flat area. And then all of a sudden you'll see this this embankment built up out of the ground and it's just a mountain and there's a cave right out there in the middle of this great big huge field as far as you can see. It was the cave of Adullam and the Bible says every man in Israel who was in distress, in debt and discontent came to David. Now that's a great way to plant a new church. In distress, in debt and discontent. So that's what David's drawing to his new church plant at the first church of Adullam. But they stayed together. And they worked through issues. And those in debt, distressed, and discontented men became the mighty men of David. Because iron sharpened iron. And they worked out their differences. And they knew what it meant to walk together in covenant. For one man to have another man's back. And they were there because of what David provided for them. And they didn't lose sight of that. They were loyal to each other. And they were loyal to David. They were running from Saul. Saul has his men out trying. They've got scouts. He's got an APB, an all-points bulletin out, trying to find David. The guys are hiding out in the back of a cave one night, way back in the caverns, and all of a sudden they hear somebody come in, and in front of them, they don't realize that the army of Israel is right outside where they're gathered several hundred, way back in the back of the cave. It's pitch black. You know, no flashlights, nobody's talking, but they realize that King Saul has just come into the cave to use the bathroom. If y'all read your Bibles, you would find some very interesting things in there. 1 Samuel 24, verses 4 through 7. Saul goes to the back of the cave and he's relieving himself, is what the Bible says. And can you imagine these several hundred guys that are back there... They're about to bust. They've already remembered that the word of the Lord had been given to David by the prophet of God that the Lord would deliver his enemy into his hand and he would be able to do with him as he chose. And in that moment, all of David's buddies are nudging him, going, this is your hour, this is your time. You can take out this crazy, demon-possessed, maniacal tyrant of a king. David slips forward and he takes out his dagger and he cuts off the little bottom edge, the fringe on Saul's robe. And as soon as he does, his heart is smitten. 
and he quietly, stealthily moves back to the back of the cave. Saul finishes his business and heads on out. David gets up and quietly moves to the mouth of the cave where Saul has already gathered with the rest of his army of Israel. And he screams at Saul and he said, Oh great king, don't listen to these men that would tell you that I am here to bring harm to you. If I wanted to kill you, I could have. Here is the bottom of your robe to prove it. How successful were your men, your secret service, your guards who were supposed to be protecting the Lord's anointed. And I've had men in here telling me to take your life. If I wanted to, I could have done it because the Lord delivered my enemy into my hands. And Saul responds in that moment in his deceit and his lying spirit. And he says, oh, David, is that the voice of my son whom I love? David said, basically, I ain't buying it. You've been chasing me like a dead dog. Like I'm a flea on the back of that dead dog is what the Bible says. And he says, the Lord judge between me and you this day. The Lord judge between me and you. And what that means? God's going to take the side of the one who's on the right. And that's what happens. Saul broke the law of God. He violated the principle of God. And he ignored the wisdom of God. David has men around him that are trying to give him an amen confirming, look, this is the fulfillment of the word the Lord gave you through the prophet that he would deliver your enemy into your hands for you to dispose of him, do with him as you please. And David in that moment when he slit the robe, the bottom of the fringe of Saul's garment, his heart smote him because he said, this is the Lord's anointed. It is not my place to stand in judgment. If first of all, the law of God commands me not to kill him. So he would not break the law of God. He refused to violate the principle of God because this is the Lord's anointed. And he, he refused to ignore the wisdom of God because he realized in that moment that if he did this and his men saw him do this, he would set a precedent for them in the future when they don't like something he's doing. They can then justify and say, well, remember, David killed the other king before him, so therefore we can kill him. David didn't break God's law David didn't violate God's principle and David didn't ignore God's wisdom. You can never accomplish the will of God doing any of those things. It's so quiet in here this morning, but I believe the Spirit of God is speaking some hearts. I have just one thing here, a couple things and I'll be finished. This is where we make it all practical right now. The Bible says the word of the Lord and the path of life. Next, next point. Psalm 119.105 says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Listen to 2 Timothy 3 as we close this message this morning. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Four things I want you to see in there. They're right there in your notes. Teaching. This is what I've been doing for the last 35, 40 minutes. Slow, didactic, educational, informative. Connecting the dots with the law of God and the principle of God and the wisdom of God. Comparing one guy who did and one guy who didn't. The difference between the two. The word for teaching is didaskaleia. It means the path that you're on. It's, it's the walk with God. It's following Jesus in His footsteps. This is the way walk ye in it. The next word, reproof. King James says rebuke. It shows you where you got off the path. Some of you have GPS systems in your vehicles or maybe in your phone. And when you take a turn that's different, Sometimes once in a blue moon you'll find something that's not exactly the way they're telling you to and you'll end up on a way and they'll, the, the GPS will say recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. And what it's doing is it's trying to find you a way back onto your path. This is the word here for correction, epinarthosis. It means how to get back on the path. Teaching is the path. Reproof is, shows me where I got off. Correction shows me how to get back on. Correcting your course how to break out of this circular Gilgal of traveling around digging ruts. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. He'll get you back on the right path. He will correct you when 
necessary. That's what the Word of God does. We sang about it this morning in the text. The law of the Lord is perfect. Finally, instruction, paideia, means how to stay on the path. Teaching is the path we're to walk on. Reproof is where we got off. Correction is how to get back on it. And then instruction and righteousness, the Bible shows me how that I can stay on that path, walking with the Lord in His favor. Musicians, I'd like you to come on if you would with me, please, right now. Get on the platform and get ready. The last section right here is just intensely practical. Four questions every time you open the Bible, you should ask these questions of the Word. Number one, is there a commandment to be obeyed? Every time you open the Bible, is there an example to be followed? What should I glean from this passage I'm reading today? Is there a principle to be learned? Is there a promise to be believed? Is there a commandment to be obeyed? If there is, then I don't have to pray about it. God's already revealed His will. The final word has been spoken. God's word is the final authority. Is there a principle to be learned that I shouldn't violate? Is there wisdom that's been shown there that I shouldn't ignore? Too many times we spiritualize, over-spiritualize, and we pray ourselves into trouble because we ignore what's clearly already been said in God's written word. Don't shout me down. Somebody say amen. I close the message this morning. Every head bowed, every heart open before the Lord, every eye closed. Lights are down. Nobody's looking around. The law of the Lord is clear. God demands perfection. I believe there are people in this room this morning that are standing at a line of faith that you've never been at before, and you realize that today is a juncture. It's a place of change. You can't keep walking the way you've been walking or living the way you've been living because God is calling you to something higher. He's calling you to walk with Him. And the only way you can do that is through Jesus Christ. The Bible very clearly tells us what the gospel is in one sentence. It's Jesus Christ is Lord over all right now. It says in Romans 10 that if you believe that in your heart, if you believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. You confess it with your mouth because you believe it in your heart. It's what the Word says in Romans 10, 9 and 10. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise of God. Is there a promise to be believed? Is that one for you today to reach out and take hold of? That you're calling on the Lord and the Bible says that the response to that is that you will be saved. I can't trust in myself and my own ability. There's nothing I can do to earn it or deserve it. All of the glory goes to God. Nothing in me can bring about my salvation. It's God and God alone. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's you right now and you're saying, Pastor, I'm desperate. I'm broken. I'm hurting. My life is a mess. I need help. I need change. First step you take is to Jesus Christ. If it's a thousand steps, God will run the other 999 to you. Actually, He's already come alongside you and touched your heart and made you ready to be able to take that step, that step of faith. If that's you this morning and you're saying, Pastor, please pray for me, would you slip your hand up? Because I want to pray for you right now in this service. Yes, I see that hand. Anybody else? And there's another one over there. Three, four. Okay, anybody else? Yes. You can put your hands down right now. Believers in this room this morning, you know Jesus is your personal Savior, but you're at a place where you're going to have to make a critical decision. You need the Lord to help you. How do I make a godly decision? And I believe some of you are asking for the wisdom of the Lord. Some of you are asking for an understanding of what the law of the Lord says, to put the word of the Lord first place. If that's you today and you're making a critical decision right now, whether it's career or relationship or financial future in any kind of way, if that's you and you'd like for us to pray for you, slip your hand up. I want to pray for you just a moment. Several hands around the room. A good dozen or so people there. Put your hands back down. First three or four of you that raised your hand this morning to cross the line of faith, I want you to pray these words with me right now. Nothing magical about saying these. This is what the Bible says. Jesus, save me. I trust you. Pray that right now in your heart. Say, Jesus, save me. I trust you. Forgive my sins. Be Lord of my life. I turn to you.
Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean any longer on your understanding. He'll make you pass straight when you acknowledge Him. In the name of Jesus, for these that lifted their hands right now, thank you, Holy Spirit, you do what only you can do. In Jesus' name I pray. For those dozen or so people that raised your hand just a moment ago, and you really crying out to God with a critical decision in your life. Father, I ask you to help us right now. Be the compass inside of us. Make us teachable. Give us teachable hearts to open your word and say, Lord, lead us. Speak to us. When you say, speak to us, open your Bible. Open your Bible and listen with your heart. Listen with your mind. Let the word of the Lord speak to you. Father, thank you for direction, for guidance, to be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Lead us, Lord. We refuse to lean on our own understanding, but we acknowledge you and we thank you that your word promises us that you'll make our paths straight. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. Yes. I have never in my life before, any more than today, with all the days I experience it, but if there ever was a day when I know that I've preached with the unction and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, it has been here in both services today in a, an outrageously tangible kind of way. So you take this because the gospel will, will change your life. We are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto complete deliverance. That's the real meaning of the word salvation. Too many times we say salvation and we think forgiveness and a home in heaven. Salvation means God sets you free from all the junk. Okay, come on somebody. Put your hands together. The gospel is still needed. Hallelujah. We're going to close today. Our last act of worship is bringing to the Lord His tithes and our offerings. We do it that way. We say it that way because the tithe belongs to the Lord. It's His. Honor the Lord with the first fruits. It's from the garden to the city all the way through. When you give God the first, He promises He'll get in His favor on the rest and bless it in crazy ways is the word of the Lord. If you're a guest this morning, please take your connection card into the foyer. We're not asking you to participate in this portion of the service. Thank you for coming. Please come back and be with us anytime you'd like. We love having you to be here with us and worship with the family of God here at Victory. If you're an, a member of another local church, your tithe belongs in that church. If that's where you're ministered to and they strengthen you and they pastor your life and come alongside you, your tithe belongs there. We don't want it here at Victory. God blesses our socks off because we honor this principle. Okay? Now, thank you for being here. We're not even asking you to participate in this portion. What we're doing right now as we close, Scott's going to sing this great Matt Marr song called Do Something. Look at your neighbor and say, take action. So it's time to do something. As we close this service, those that are the regular attenders, covenant members here at Victory, we're obeying the word of the Lord, supporting the vision that God's given us here to continue to reach the delta with the gospel with a life-giving message. How many of you know there's been life in this room this morning? A life-giving message. Jesus Christ. Thank you for coming. Uh, be in prayer. I'll just say this one more time. My quick 10-second announcement. Pray about the 30th of the month because that offering that day in both services, every bit of it will go entirely to our 2015 outreaches. We'll be buying five or $6,000 worth of coats. The second Saturday of December, December 13th, we'll be giving coats away to children in need. And so we're excited about all the things that we're going to be doing in 2015 and our outreach. So pray and ask the Lord what He would have you to give. Stand with us one last time this morning before we go and let's sing to the Lord together. Come on.